Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11 is where we'll be in the text this morning. Before we get there, though, I do need to repent publicly. Uh, Last night, I told my wife that I would preach short this morning. Uh, And then this morning, as I was in here reviewing my notes and all that, I realized I ain't preaching two weeks, and I have a lot to say. I have a lot to say. So I'll try to condense it, shorten it down. But if I don't, honey, I repent for telling a lie. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11 is where we'll be this morning. And let's see. Hold on. Uh, if you've been with us in our uh, First Samuel uh, series, you'll know we, we, preach, uh, we, we preach Jesus from every text of this Bible, uh, including this one today. But, but where we are so far in our Samuel series, uh, the people in chapter 8, let me just give you some context of where we are uh, so that the story can actually make sense. And uh, The people in chapter 8 have said that they want a king to rule over them to go out and fight their battles. These are God's people. God was their king. They rejected God. They want a human king to be like the other nations, and they want this king to go out and fight their battles. In chapter 9, we discover uh, Saul, and in chapter 10, Saul's anointed king. At the end of chapter 10, uh, he is proclaimed as king. Uh, he's declared the king. The people say, long live the king. Uh, and then we find ourselves here uh, right near the end of chapter 11. And as we read this story together, we're going to read the whole text. Uh, I want you to be asking yourself two questions. Two questions this morning. Number one, what in the world is this story about? Just think of that as I read the text and you follow along. What is this story about? Uh, Number two, why do I care? Why do I care? So look with the text with me. First Samuel, I said chapter 11, back up a little bit in chapter 10 to verse 26. It says this, Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched And some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? They despised him, brought him no present, but he held his peace. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged uh, Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, uh, said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people? That they are weeping. And so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen, cut them up in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. The dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. 
Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Saul, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. And so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your scripture to us this morning, without which we would be utterly lost. Uh, We would be uh, mere people fooling around about in the darkness, unsure of what is true, what is good, what is gracious. But Father, you've given us a word this morning from your text. Lord, you've, you've shown us how we are to live, how we are to think, how we are to worship you. And so, Father, may these uh, scriptures, by the work of the Spirit, confront us, convict us, and lead us to Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what is this story about, and why is it relevant to us today? Well, if you were paying attention, you might have noticed the story is about emotions. So you've got these worthless fellows in chapter 10, verse 27, right? They're despising King Saul. you got the people of Gibeah. They're weeping in verse 4. You got Saul who seems to be greatly angered in verse 6. You got the people of Israel who, who are fearing the Lord in verse 7. You got the men of Jabesh again who are now glad in verse 9. And in verse 15, you have Saul and all of Israel rejoicing. So you could say, what's this story about? It could be about an emotional journey. Um, you could also say it's a story of great leadership. This is Saul's first real test as king against an enemy named Nahash. And so seeing how, how will Saul lead, how will he rule, how will he uh, lead God's people, you could say it's a story about that. And while this story can be traced through the emotions of all the different characters involved, and while we see Saul's first encounter with an enemy to be a feature of great leadership, there is still yet another thread that has run throughout this entire story. If I may, I would like to submit to you this morning that this story is primarily about the means by which God intends to save the world. You say, that seems a bit dramatic. It is. That's what the text says. So the big idea of my sermon uh, is this, that, that God is going to save the world through a king. God is going to save the world through a king. And my, my title of my sermon this morning is A Skeptic, a Serpent, a Coward, and a King. A Skeptic, a Serpent, a Coward, and a King. Let's look at where this story begins. Look at verse 26 of chapter 10. Remember, at this point, Saul has been, uh, uh, the, the people have said, long live the king. This is Saul, uh, now king. Uh, he goes to his home. Now, you would expect that a king, in verse 26, it says he, he goes to his home in Gibeah. You would expect a king to uh, then do what? Go to a palace, right? Start, start ordering some folks around, start, start taking leadership. But it says he went to his home. And with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched, But then you get these skeptics in verse 27, don't you? You get these worthless fellows that says, how can this man save us? And they despised him, brought him no present, but he held his peace. You see, the story begins with a a skeptic, where you might say a a group of skeptics. Saul has been named king, anointed by Samuel, and Samuel just said in verse 24 that this is the man whom the Lord has chosen. And while that seems to have convinced a good majority of the people, there was this set of people, this group of people who sat back, quietly shook their heads, said, not a chance. No way. 
This is just a dude. How is he going to save? Just because Saul's a head taller than everyone? Just because Samuel has said the Lord has chosen him? Just because the people shout for joy wasn't enough to convict, convict these folks or convince these folks? They say in verse 27, how, how, how can this man save us? They looked at the horizons, which at this point seemed to be uh, primarily Philistines on the horizon, bearing down to destroy God's people. And they look over here and they see Saul being lifted up as king. And they say, nah, no way. They're not buying it. Moreover, it says that they didn't just say nah, they, they despised him, brought him no presents. Friends, can I, I must admit to you something this morning, something I've said before, uh, before I came to Christ. Uh, years after walking with Jesus through good times and bad times, I still at, five, at times found myself where these worthless fellows found themselves. I myself at times found myself playing the part of the skeptic. You see, before I came to Christ, I had heard the gospel message before and thought, nah, how can anything that happened 2,000 years ago affect me today? I grew up in deep poverty and seen firsthand some real suffering from those around me. And I would see joyous Christians singing silly songs like, joy of the Lord is my strength. And I'd be like, that's ridiculous. I said, these kids are so brainwashed, they have no clue how cold and harsh the world is out here. To think that a man named Jesus could actually care for me and love me and save me, I just wasn't buying that. Wasn't buying until the Lord opened my eyes. You see, when you have a heart of stone, which by the way is the way all people are outside of Christ, when you have a heart of stone, then of course the, the world looks harsh. The world looks cold informal, dismal. When you have a heart of stone, you're unable to truly enjoy and delight in all the things of the Lord. I had a conversation with a group of men this week, uh, uh, and the, 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 the conversation kind of circled around what is joy, what is contentment. And I posed to these brothers, I said that, that those who are not in Christ are unable to truly and fully understand and be grounded in joy and contentment. And it was some like, oh boy, here he goes again. You think Christians have a monopoly on joy, they said? I said, absolutely. Absolutely they do. You see, the, they would say things like, uh, uh, people who aren't Christians can't enjoy, can't have joy. And I said, well, listen, here's the thing. If you aren't a Christian, you, can't, you can get these little flutterings, this, the, the breeze of God's grace blow across your face, and you can feel it and know it's there. But since you do not know the love of the Father, and since you have a heart of stone and not a heart of flesh and blood, then you cannot fully understand or comprehend what's actually happening. Can I have true joy, true contentment? And you may be sitting here today and thinking, that seems extremely arrogant, Pastor. One objection to this, this kind of claim is that uh, uh, the number one that I hear uh, bring is like, well, I have joy and contentment in my family. That's, that's the number one people turn to. Like, I don't have to be a Christian. I got my family. I love my family. They bring me great joy. Let, let me put this to you this morning. It's a very easy one to deal with. Your family can be taken from you in a second. In a second. You might drive home today from church, get in an accident, and everyone in your family dies except you. Where's your joy then? Where's your joy then? What comfort do you have? What healing balm can heal a burn that deep in the soul. You see, Job in the scriptures lost his family in a day. 
But only our hope in Jesus can we say with Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, the Christian is the only one who truly understands what's going on at the basis of joy. What's ultimate joy? It's not to say that unbelievers cannot have joy in friendships, family, marriage, uh, sex, all these good things. They, They can have joy in it. They just don't understand the ultimate joy which underpins it. You see what I'm saying? It was also my skepticism, uh, skepticism which drove me deep into studying the scriptures my first few years of walking with Jesus. I would be talking with friends in high school and they would say things like, you really believe every person who has ever, ever lived came from one man and one woman? And I'd be like, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good thought. They would say things, you really believe that a virgin who's never known a man had a baby? I'd be like, oof, I don't, I don't, it doesn't seem right, does it? They would say things like, do you really believe that Jesus was God in the flesh? Or you really believe that a book that was written by men over 2,000 years ago and handed down century after century, one generation to another, can still be true? Not just a giant game of telephone? It was my skepticism that drove me into the scriptures. What does the Lord say? Almost always I would say, well, now that you say that, I, I don't know, maybe not. Maybe I don't believe that. And so I look at the book. What does the book say? Many times in my early faith, I would uh, go back and forth on, on key doctrines and understanding what does it mean. But what I knew to be true is something had happened to me. This is true for you, too, if you're a Christian, by the way. Something happened to me. Something had changed on the inside of me. It wasn't emotionalism at the end of a sermon. What had happened is I had been given a new heart. I had been made as a new creation. Over the years, the Lord has continued to press out of me my natural skepticism. Like Even now, like my wife comes to me, she says, let me tell you about these essential oils. And I'm like, mm, I don't know. I don't know, hon. Uh, or, or, or all kinds of things. Uh, uh, and it's just natural skepticism. Uh, and that's just the, the air that we breathe, by the way. We live in a culture of doubt. Doubt everything. I doubt your doubts. How about that? That's, that's where, the, so, so my, my, my point is, uh, that these, there's natural skepticism. Uh, there's things that we, uh, like, I don't know, I haven't read enough about it. Let me, let me go look and see whether this can be true. But that's not where these men were, you understand? They asked the question not because they were curious and truly wanted to know how this man named Saul could save them. But they didn't believe that he could, ultimately. They despised him. They didn't believe that he could lead to their salvation. And it's not just in the Old Testament we find skeptics like this. They're all, all throughout the New Testament. Right? So take this passage from Matthew 27. The scribes and the elders mocking Jesus on the cross. Here's what they say. He said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Right? They say, prove it, Jesus. Prove it. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Or you even have those who are closest to Jesus, right? Uh, the disciples telling, uh, uh, telling Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he says to them, unless I see his hands, in, the ha- in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I'll, I'll, I'll never believe you. Friends, you might be here today a skeptic, asking the questions that these men asked in chapter 10. How can Jesus save us? Understand that you can ask that question in one of two ways. You can ask it with faith-seeking understanding. Like you really want to know how, how, how can it be? I believe it. I don't understand it. Let me look and see. 
Or you can ask it in such a way that you become like these men whom the Bible calls worthless men with hatred on your lips and despising Jesus with your heart. And yet, even if that's true, that doesn't change the love of the Father for you. That doesn't change the fact that the men who were at the feet of Jesus mocking him were at the same time being prayed for by Jesus, whom he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The story is about a skeptic. But it's also a story about a serpent. If you've been following along in the story of Samuel, who's the enemy the Israelites have up, to, up until this point? Do you know? Just shout it out. It's okay. Who's, a, who's a, uh, Israel's enemy in, up until this point in the story? The Philistines. Amen. That's right. Good job, Philip. The Philistines. That's right. Uh, but, but look at chapter uh, 11, verse 1. Look at this. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. You see, the Ammonites were descendants of Lot who lived on the east side of the Jordan. So watch this. You've got the Philistines to the west of Israel. But to, uh, to the east of Israel, you've got these, these Ammonites. So we have this new enemy moving in from the east, and they're, they're, they're laying siege. They're attacking this city called Jabesh Gilead. So, 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 so why, why is this story here? Right, why does the author of Samuel decide to go from announcing and anointing and the people saying, long live the king of Saul, to these comment about these worthless men saying, who can save us? To now a story about Israel under attack, only this time by a new enemy. What will he do? If you're, if you're a reader of this story for the first time, what will Saul do? How will he respond? Will he wither away in fear? Or will he take courage and have a backbone in the Lord and defeat the enemy? In other words, as we look at this text, we should be asking ourselves the same questions we ask every story we read. Which is how I teach my kids to read. Which is, will Saul be a good guy? Or will Saul be a bad guy? I wonder, do you read the Bible that way? Do you read the Bible through the lens of which one's the good guy, which one's the bad guy? It's, it's fun. You should. It's the right way. My guess is most of you want to say yes, or at least that there's on this some first pass, or this sounds, this resounds a note that sounds like, yeah, that sounds like how we should read the Bible. But perhaps you, it gets dulled out and you think, hmm, is that the way we should? You see, there's this new, uh, new or at least recent movement in cinematic productions. I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, the recent movement in cinematic productions is to do these origin stories, only not of the heroes, origin stories of the villains. Have you guys seen these? Think of uh, Cruella. Uh, think of the Joker, right, in the Batman series, for you guys who watch TV like me. Um, like, okay, just take Cruella, for example. You all remember her from 101 Dalmatians? I mean, some of you all were alive when the movie came out. I was not, okay? So I know you all remember it, right? Uh, you remember what her last name was? What was her full name? Cruella Deville. This devil split, with a, split up, right? Even in the title and the name, like, you know she's a bad guy. She's a bad guy. But in the new movie, 2021, uh, Disney's released Cruella. She's not painted as a villain anymore, but rather someone who's misunderstood. The same thing happens in the Joker movies. You might be wondering what in the world Cruella and the Joker has to do with the way you read your Bible. Here's my point. We all see evil in the world. There's no denying that. Hollywood sees evil in the world. The question then becomes, 
how did, how did it get this way? What makes someone a bad guy or a good guy? That's, that's the question. And so Hollywood would have you believe she's not really a bad guy. She's just misunderstood. Uh, uh, for Hollywood, they relied on psychology to explain it, right? Cruella isn't, really isn't evil. Uh, she's basically good, just misunderstood, and is only this way because of what has happened to her. Right? That's, a, that's a story. Not because of anything within her or of herself. The world at large will teach you that all people are basically good and that people are only evil if something or someone wrongs them, something happens to them. That's what makes a person evil, but you take all that away, basically good. Basically. You know, the, 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 in Jesus' day, people also believed this as well. Only they, they, they believed it in, in different terms. They believed it that, that what, would, uh, what, what they ate would make them unclean. Right? You remember the story, Mark chapter 7? Uh, uh, they, they thought that what a person eats makes them unclean, and how does Jesus correct them? He says this, he says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things, all of these evil things come from where? Within. They come from within. They are what defile a person. You see, Jesus is teaching that our hearts are not basically good. Like, we're not all just going to be all right. He said, no, 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 your heart is evil. It's not that the world around you makes you evil. It's that the heart that you're born with is evil. Listen, the world, if you look around in your world and you see evil out there, it's not because uh, 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 of things out there. It's because of what's in here. The world around us is evil because men and women like you and I are producing evil in it. So, so read your Bibles like this. I don't read it as if you read a newspaper. Oh, well, King Saul, yeah. No, read it. That's how, that's how those scriptures are meant to be read. Is, is this a good guy or a bad guy? Will Adam and Eve trust God in the garden? Will Abram trust God with his wife in Egypt? Will the God's people whom he rescued out of slavery live as God's people with full faith in their father in God's world? Will Hannah believe God is able to give her a son? You see, the scriptures are constantly putting before you examples and stories of people who have been faced with similar challenges and circumstances to what you are facing. Some will be examples you should follow, but a lot of them, a lot of them are stories of how men and women of God have failed, and you shouldn't follow them. So here Saul is named king, and immediately you have Nahash the Ammonite attacking God's people. What will he do? Is he going to be a good guy, or is he going to be a bad guy? It's the same story of Adam in the garden. Will he obey God and cast out the serpent, or will he let the serpent deceive his wife Eve? What's of particular importance in this story, by the way, is Nahash, the, 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 the king, the Ammonite king, his name means Serpent. It means serpent. Don't miss that. Saul's first test to be, is to be confronted by a serpent. So the question, if you understand your Bibles, is, will Saul be the one to crush the head of this serpent? It's a story about a skeptic, and it's a story about a serpent. But now let's look at a coward. Look at verse uh, 1 again. 
Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this occasion, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all, all of your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves to you. So a little bit of background uh, on this, because you need to understand that the, the scriptures are all tied together, right? So you can't just take this story and go over here and be like, okay, let's dissect it and look at it without understanding how it relates to the other stories. So for example, as I read this chapter earlier, you may have been like, I, I think I remember something similar happening elsewhere in the Old Testament, right? So this passage is, is definitely tied to Judges chapters 19 to 21, uh, which, if you don't understand Judges chapters 19 through 21, you'll miss some of the important aspects of this story. Let me summarize uh, Judges 19 through 21 in PG-13 language. In Judges chapters 19 through 21, a man's concubine is raped and murdered. The man, this, uh, but by the way, I, I was going over this some of this some of my notes with Julie the other day, and she's like, I don't remember that story. Huh, that sounds wild. I said it's in there. The man then, <laughs> the man di- then dismembers her, cuts her up into pieces. Sends her throughout the land of Israel as a clarion call on the men of Israel to bring about justice on the tribe which was responsible for this uh, horrendous act, the tribe of Benjamin. So he's, she dies, cuts her up, puts her in a little box with a little bow on it and sends it off. All the tribes, 12 tribes, 11 tribes. He sends it off. He says, y'all come out here and let's take care of justice. Let's do business. War breaks out and the tribe of Benjamin is left decimated. Now, if you're paying attention to the story that we read earlier, you might be thinking, wait a minute. Doesn't, doesn't Saul do something very similar? And the answer is exactly, which is why these stories are connected and related. But in Judges in chapters 19 through 21, uh, the, the response to the call of the tribes to come to fight Benjamin, there was one city which refused to send a group of men. One city out of all the tribes, uh, all the cities that were represented, there was one city that refused to send any men to fight. Does anyone know which city refused to come? You who know your Bibles? It's the very city which is now under attack by the Ammonites, Jabesh Gilead. In other words, Jabesh Gilead here is a coward. A coward who is now under siege from the enemy. And now notice what they do. Notice what they do in verse 1. They go to Nahash, the king, and say, hey, 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 we surrender. We give up. More than that, you know what? We'll, we'll, we will serve you. We won't serve the Lord our God. We will serve you, Nahash, king. Don't miss us. These are God's people. These are the people who grew up hearing stories of how their family had been rescued out of slavery in Egypt. And now they are telling this serpent king, if you don't kill us, we'll serve you. He agrees on one condition, to gouge out their right eyes, uh, to bring disgrace on Israel. You see, this disgrace would not just be limited to the people of Jabesh Gilead. It would be on all of God's people. In other words, this would be a mark on God himself, unable to provide for his family, unable to take care of his people. His people agree to the serpent's terms, but then they ask for seven days to be able to ask for help. And if no one else comes, if no one else comes to save them, will allow the serpent to have his way. So the question then becomes, well, how will God save his people? 
Let's look at this last part. A skeptic, a serpent, a coward, and a king. Look at verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Now let's just stop right there for a minute. I've been in church 15 years. Most of the time I've heard men being called to put away aggression, to put away anger, and instead become quiet, meek, and mild. Most of the commentators I read on this passage talk similarly about Saul's anger here being greatly kindled. Like, yeah, yeah, he probably shouldn't have done that. They think in terms of Saul sinning in this moment, like, like doing wrong. But, but notice with me again the details of that verse. Verse 6, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. If we read this slowly, we'll notice that there's three parts. The first is he hears the words, and then two things happen. Number one, the Spirit of God rushes upon him, and number two, he gets very upset, very angry. I submit to you this morning that Saul is not sinning here. Instead, Saul is being contrasted with the people of his town who are merely crying and weeping about it, unsure of how to move forward in the situation. They are moved to tears, but Saul is moved to anger. But not anger in and of himself, it's anger from the Lord. It's the the spirit within him. The spirit rushed upon him, and then he becomes angry. And so men of this church, look right at me. There are things right now in your life that you should be angry about. I had a different word in my notes. I knew my wife would say something to me if I flipped out that word, so I took it out. There are things in your life that should get you enraged right now. Like there are things in your life that should make you furious, irate, provoked. Listen, the enemy has lulled the men of the church to sleep by teaching that their natural bends towards fighting and aggression is in every case, in every circumstance, wrong. But that isn't true. It isn't true. Men, you are called to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for Ephesians 5, 25. You are called to be the primary shepherd of your children's hearts into the presence of God. What that means then is when you see sin in your life, that should get you riled up. The Bible uses the language of spiritual, of warfare to describe the life of a believer. In other words, we don't coddle our sin. We don't just say, ah, you know, I got the problem. You put it to death. You, you kill it. You aren't to be angry at your kids or your wife, but you are to be angry at the evil one and make war on him. So many men are being taught to be passive in their families, passive in their faith, passive in their commitments to the church, passive in evangelism, passive in living for Christ. Let me put it to you this way. The, the, the men in the church, primarily in our day and age, are being taught what it looks like to be a woman in church. Don't miss that. Men are being, like, okay, in the beginning, how did God create mankind? Male and female. He created a male and female. Who does God save? He saves men and women. 
He saves men and women, which means then that there's not this uh, uh, unengendered, there's not this, this kind of uh, uh, picturesque person uh, in Christ. It means there's men in Christ and there's women in Christ, and they look and act differently. The role on Adam was to lead his wife in the commandments of the Lord, and he failed. The command on you from Christ, if you are going to claim Jesus as your Lord, claim Jesus as uh, the one to whom you follow, then men, your call to stand before God is to lead your family, to be the head of your house. Not to be passive, not to be unengaged, not to be not making war. Ladies, when your husband begins to, by the Spirit, lead you in paths of righteousness, you know what your response is? It's not like, let me see that book and let me do it. Ephesians 5.22 is clear. You're to submit to him, just like you submit to your heavenly father. This means that when he says, hey, we're going to pray together this evening, or hey, let's read the Bible together, or hey, honey, we need to talk about some issues in our marriage, or we need to commit to our faith, family, regardless of the cost it uh, has in social status, your response is not to turn your nose up at him, or to think that you somehow know better, ladies. Your response is not to use words that will cut him to the core. Your response is to be a woman in Christ. Submit to your husband who loves you as Christ loves the church. Men, your call on your life is to get angry at sin in your life, sin in your kid's life, sin in your family's life, sin in this church, sin in this community. You see what I'm saying? We need men with backbones who will stand flat-footed for the sake of the gospel to see Jesus' name lifted high in our day. For the sake of time, let me summarize the middle of the story for you. In verse 7, Saul takes the oxen. He's just got done walking behind as he's coming in from the fields, and he cuts them up to pieces. He sends them off to the 12 tribes of Israel and says, you men are going to follow me into battle, or I'm going to come cut your ox up like I just cut my ox up. The fear of the Lord falls on the people, and they come out to follow this king. And Saul gets the messengers back to Jabesh Gilead and says, you're going to be free by noon tomorrow. And then Saul and his army obliterate the Ammonites. That's the story. Now look at verse 12 with me. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring those dudes here, that we may put them to death. The people of Israel are so impressed with Saul that they go to Samuel and say, Hey, yo, you remember those worthless fellows? Where they at? Bring them. Bring them here. We're going we to handle business today. In other words, King Saul has so radically proven that he indeed can and will save the people that they no longer want in their midst these jokers running their mouths about Saul can't save us. And so they plan to silence them once and for all. But then look at verse, 17, or verse 13. Paul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul says, No, 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 don't, don't worry about those guys. No one's going to die today. But look at why. This is huge. Don't miss this. It wasn't because he uh, was secure in his own leadership. They said, nah, we don't don't worry about that. I proved my point today. He, He says, no, no, no. No one's going to die this day, for today it's the Lord who has worked salvation in Israel. Now let me tie this all together, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. The overarching question is posed in chapter 10, verse 27. How can this man save us? That's the question of the text. The salvation emphasis is brought up again in verse 3 as the people look for someone to save them. 
Those same people are told in verse 9 that their salvation will come on the next day. And then we're told in verse 13, it's the Lord who did it all. It's the Lord who did it all. Now let me show you Jesus here. You might be asking the same question. How can God save us? This broken, busted world. I'm broken and busted. How will, how will God save us? The answer is only found in Christ. God will save his people by becoming like them. He will take on the form of a servant. He will be born in the likeness of mankind. He will humble himself and die on an old rugged cross outside the city gates on a hill called Calvary. He will be taken off that old bloody stained rugged cross and laid in a tomb. You see the seven days that the messengers had asked the serpent for? You might be asked, why didn't Nahash let them go? Why didn't he just pluck their eyes out right there? It's because the enemy thought he had already won. The serpent thought he had already won in the same way the serpent thought he had won when Jesus laid up in the tomb for three days. He thought he had the victory. Oh, but you see, Nahash, that serpent, didn't know. He didn't know that the Lord had already anointed a man. He didn't know the people had already said, long live this king before us. He didn't know that in a backwater town called Gibeah, there was a king waiting. He thought he had won. He thought he had won the victory. The devil thought he had defeated and crushed God finally. But what he thought was a crushing defeat, friends, was just a bruise. It's just a bruise. You see, for after three days in the tomb, God the Father looked at God the Son and said, Get up. You ain't defeated. Get up. In that moment, God the Father raised God the Son by the power of God the Holy Ghost. It was a king that freed that cowardly town of Jabesh Gilead, and it was a king that freed you and I from our skepticism of unbelief. It was a king that freed you and I from our cowardly serving of the devil and his uh, enemies. Do you, do you know what the early church would say, uh, would make people say when they would baptize people? We might bring us back here. I don't know. Uh, the early church would make people who wanted to come forward, profess their faith in Christ, and get baptized. They would make them say this. I now publicly renounce the kingdom of Satan and I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. Like, you ain't willing to say that, you ain't getting in these waters, is what they would say. You're gonna say that, but you're not getting in this water because that's what it means. That's what baptism means. It says, I'm no longer in this kingdom of darkness, I'm now in this kingdom of light. You see, God gives us a new heart. He makes us a new creation. He moves us out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. You see, old Saul thought, today the Lord, or old Saul said, today the Lord has brought you salvation. And I'm here to tell you today, the Lord has brought you salvation through another and a better and a greater king, King Jesus. And now you who were skeptics are shown kindness and mercy by this king. You who were cowards are shown kindness and mercy by this king. Come to this king. Serve this king. Pledge allegiance to this king. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we've sat underneath this text and let it speak to our lives, some, some of us find ourselves in the part of the skeptic, unwilling, unable to believe any of it so hurt by the pain of life and the pain of loss that we doubt your goodness and say it can't be. Some of us sit in this room as cowards, afraid to mention the name of Jesus everywhere we go. Lord, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we can be changed. 
The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you are the one who changes us by the power of the Spirit, not by our own working, not by our own might, but through the power of the Spirit. So those of us who were before skeptics, those of us who were before cowards are now brought into your presence because of Jesus. And we claim allegiance to this king so much so that we will be baptized with him to claim his name and to tell others about it. Father, I pray you would give us assurance of our faith. Give us assurance of our faith. Give us knowledge of the scriptures. Give us, uh, uh, let us know who you are from this book. Not from what we think, not from what we feel, but from who you are as revealed in your book. Father, I pray that we would be men and women with backbones of Holy Ghost gospel, Father, that we would stand flat-footed in a world that is so easily tossed to and fro. And we would be unashamed Unashamed, Father, to claim your name and the power of the gospel in our day. Father, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. At this time, we'll